Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lou Bell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is about a man who is willing to let his vanity become deadly. Please enjoy Forever Young. The paramedics were not only too late, they were out of their depth. By the time they arrived, the blood had already sunk into the attic's floorboards. Pink insulation around the edges had thirstily inhaled the dark red liquid that dying hearts had pumped in their direction. And there, in the center of the floor, were the bodies. The Yurg estate had been silent when the ambulances finally arrived. With the front doorway halfway open, the EMTs easily let themselves in, calling out for anyone who might be able to hear them. No one could, of course. The Yurg estate had never been so hollow and silent. This mansion had at one point been full of life, hosting parties for only the best kinds of people. Rich socialites, politicians, famous actors. Once the story of the murders broke, inevitably, they'd all issue statements of shock, distancing themselves from that family and their secret parties. Years ago, the Yurg Estates halls carried echoes of clinking glasses, voices yelling cheers, and music performed by only the most popular acts of the day. Upstairs, behind its many closed doors, it was anyone's guess what went on. But that was half the fun. The rumors, scandals, urban legends, accusations appeared in thread after thread online. Cell phones always had to be checked at the door, but inevitably photos and videos would continue to leak, allowing the regular world to catch brief glimpses of how great life really could be if only you had money. The beautiful people always began the night looking camera ready, practically glowing in their dresses and suits, holding champagne glasses and smiling. But the secret photos taken later in the dark hours of the night revealed wild bloodshot eyes, sweaty faces, and disheveled clothing, as unspoken vices took their toll on the beautiful people every night. But then there was Nayrod. No bloodshot eyes, no bulging veins, not even a hair out of place. Nayrod always looked like he had declined to take part in whatever wreaked such havoc on his guests. The big rumor was that Nayrod hosted parties just to gather blackmail material over his wealthy friends. And anonymous people online theorized, maybe he always needs to be the one in control, the perfect host. Or maybe he gets his rocks off watching beautiful people lose control. There was a bit of truth to those theories, but there was also the fact that after years of the same party, week after week, the rush was gone. Most importantly, though, the reason Nayrod managed himself with complete self-discipline was this. He was getting older. Some might think a 25-year-old wouldn't worry about aging, but he had noticed the slight sinking of his cheeks, the sallowness that was robbing his fresh-faced look, the hairline that had moved imperceptibly, but definitely, further back on his forehead. His vanity would no longer allow him to be as reckless as he was in his younger days. He meticulously guarded his health and looks now, knowing their time was running out. Nayrod got his start as a child actor, a rare occupation afforded by a Yurg family legacy of gaining power and money through murder and theft. Grandfather Basil was the first of the Yurgs to build a fortune during the Prohibition days. At that time, Basil kept the repressed swimming in alcohol and cut his competition's throats. 
literally, some would say. All that money needed a place to hide, though, and a major television production studio was just as good as anything else. After all, the Yerk family's industry was always focused around entertainment, one way or another. Basil's son Walter was born into the family business, and later, when Nayrod was born, the Yergs exerted their considerable power to place young Nayrod as the lead on a show called It's My World. Nepotism had given Nayrod his start, but his effortless good looks and chameleon like ability to take on any persona made him a skilled performer. Audiences loved to watch him grow up on screen. He went from being a precocious, chubby-cheeked little blonde boy to a strapping, square-jawed teen. Nayrod had his first kiss on the show. His voice changed in front of America, and the older he got, the more the public was obsessed with him and his personal life. They were captivated by his steel-blue eyes, his wavy, sand-colored hair, and his endless ability to always be in the company of beautiful actresses or models. Even when his series was eventually over, the show went on. Off-camera, Nayrod simply played the role of himself. The Yerk family had delusions of grandeur, but it was certainly Grandfather Basil who set the bar. His greed and his addictions had contorted his once good looks into those of a frail old miser. Although his spine bowed inward and his skin grew pale and leathery, Basil refused to face reality. "'History is told by the winners,' he'd say." And so he commissioned an artist to paint his portrait, showing himself as a lively, vibrant man of strength and vitality. A lie. The tradition continued. Nayrod's father, Walter, would have his own portrait painted, again with no shortage of embellishments to better portray himself as a shrewd, industrious leader, rather than the weak inheritor of wealth that he truly was. And then finally, on his 25th birthday, it was Nayrod's turn. The day his portrait was painted, Nayrod posed with a look of superiority on his face in a room adorned with the portraits of his father and grandfather, who themselves sat in a dark, smoky corner watching the young Nayrod. Were they proud of him? He didn't know. He'd grown up getting told by the two men that he was just a pretty boy without a brain for business. Nonetheless, he was the heir to the throne and the fortune the next male to carry on their proud lineage. Never mind that between them they'd had five or six wives, some dead, some lucky to escape alive. Nayrod's own mother had taken her life when he was only six. He only remembered what the tabloid said about it. He had watched anchors on gossip shows mourn her even as he heard his father laughing with friends in the parlor down the hall. The Yerg men always left a body count. Absently, Nayrod thought about the next party. It would be his birthday party that weekend. Who would he end up with that night? How much would he even remember in the morning? The faces of the men and women all blurred together now. He couldn't keep the revolving door straight. It had all become so routine. Young man? Nayrod felt himself yanked back to the present moment. The portrait artist was trying to get his full attention. Lost in this daydream, Nayrod had begun to slouch. Apologizing, Nayrod snuck in a full stretch before resuming his pose. Shoulders back, chest proudly forward, frozen in time. But that didn't stop his mind from racing or his eyes from flicking between the portraits of his father and grandfather. The subjects themselves kept watching quietly from a smoke-filled corner. It was all such bullshit. 
Grandfather Basil had probably never resembled the depiction of himself on that canvas. Certainly the painted face's pretension was a match for his grandfather's smug personality, but the old man looked like even a gentle breeze could knock him to the ground. And as for Nayrod's father, well, there had never been a weaker example of strength as Walter. Walter had inherited everything and built nothing. The money enabled him. Rather than build his wealth and use it as a tool for good, the money had bloated him and left him greasy and lazy. While he was a gluttonous slob, the portrait displayed him as a proud, chiseled man on a balcony with the entire city behind him, as if he took care of each and every resident. In reality, he couldn't care for anyone, least of all his son, who was seemingly doomed to the same empty future. Nayrod wondered how his portrait would turn out to be, what his father and grandfather had told the artist to turn him into. And he thought about how futile a ritual this tradition was. That portrait might exist for generations upon generations, while Nayrod himself grew older, fatter, uglier, and then dead. His decrepit future was clear before him, exhibits A and B, his father and grandfather. God, he thought he would do anything to avoid turning into them. Nayrod, his grandfather barked. Pull it together. You want to look like a spineless sissy for eternity? Do what your grandfather says, son. Nayrod's body reacted to the admonitions, anger growing in him. A hacking cough and a wheeze from the corner signaled that Grandfather Basil was laughing at him. Rain began to lightly tap on the roof of the Yurg estate, and soon it was flying sideways through the open window. But Nayrod neither heard it or felt it. He was lost in furious thought. He stood like the perfect subject for the portrait artist, as still as a bowl of fruit, but his muscles were tensing. Bit by bit, his right hand turned into a fist, his knuckles glowing white. He watched the artist lean close to the massive canvas that partially blocked him and make careful strokes, imagining the day decades from now that he would look upon his portrait of youth with regret and self-loathing. Anything, I thought. I would do anything, even sell my soul, to never change. Another wheezy laugh rippled through his grandfather's hollow chest in the dark corner, and his father chuckled in response. That was when another thought rose in Nayrod's mind, a thought that even shocked him. I will kill you both one day with my own bare hands. At this, Nayrod felt his nails break the skin of his palm, and a warm wetness ooze out. A faint sneer crept across his perfect face as lightning flashed, and suddenly the doors to the parlor burst open. In strode Henry Walker, one of Nayrod's only close friends. While Nayrod's father and grandfather shouted their disapproval, Henry, forever scheming, asked the painter for his cell phone, snapped a picture of Nayrod in his perfect pose, and tossed the phone back to the painter, and shouted, paint this, over his shoulder, while he ushered Nayrod out of the room. But just before the doors closed behind them, Nayrod caught a fleeting glimpse of his portrait, anxious to see what the artist had chosen to change. Nothing. Wait, not nothing. Nayrod immediately convinced himself that he was wrong, but for a second, he thought he saw a stain of red on his portrait's right hand. All afternoon, as Henry shared his latest exploits, Nayrod's mind raced. All he saw before him were his father and grandfather. He was doomed to become a victim of his own inheritance, of the same fate as them, of the family legacy of decay. Nayrod wanted to make his own future, build something for himself. 
He absentmindedly rubbed his right palm with his left hand while Henry rambled about ditching his life and running away, just disappearing. Henry, too, was bored of the endless parties, and nothing brought him any excitement anymore, he said. Well, not exactly nothing. Henry had discovered something recently that filled him with exhilaration, a burst of energy, a reminder that he was still alive. As Henry reached across the table towards his friend, Nayrod was still thinking about his grandfather laughing at him. He imagined himself wrapping his hands around the old man's neck while in the corner his portrait would watch, a sneer crawling across its lips as finally, Ow! A flood of adrenaline coursed through Nayrod's body, and a sharp stinging ripped his skin. Across the table, Henry was studying Nayrod's reaction, holding his small pocket knife just above a slash in Nayrod's knuckles. It wasn't deep, just enough to draw blood, and just enough to pull Nayrod back to reality. Do you feel that rush? Henry's eyes were filled with a sort of fire. You did, I can tell, he grinned, flipping his knife shut and handing it to Nayrod. Nayrod wanted to punch his friend, but as he pressed a napkin against his knuckles, his shock gave away to painful pleasure. He stared at his friend, confused. The look in Henry's eyes was not only dangerous, it was exciting. This, said Henry, was bloodletting. Henry had heard about it on some social media app a few weeks earlier, heard that it felt better than doing drugs. The rush of cutting into flesh and drawing blood, it was full of adrenaline and fear. Henry had tried it a few times on his own self in places no one could see, and once he was hooked, he didn't want his friend missing out on the fun. The rest of the day, Nayrod's face glowed with a new vigor, and he realized that this was the rush, the feeling of being alive that he had been long seeking. And now that he had tasted it, he would pursue it at all costs. No more daydreaming for him. It was time to live. That night when he returned home, he returned home a changed man. With his footsteps lightly creaking on the stairs, he walked past his bedroom door, instead heading to the parlor, his portrait weighing heavily on his mind. This might be the last time he ever set foot in the Jurg estate. As he pushed open the door, his eyes landed on the portrait. The painted Nayrod appeared to stare back, as if unsurprised to see a visitor. The eyes felt alive, almost glowing in the dark. Nayrod stared back into his own eyes at his beautiful, perfect face in the canvas and knew that he would not let himself grow decrepit there. He was going to pursue freedom, indulgence, hedonism. As long as he had his youth, he was going to seek more of the rush that he had discovered tonight. He would have to pack clothes, shoes, toiletries, or maybe he didn't have to pack anything. No, instead, he could just move some money around, pull from the family account into a private one only he could access. Hadn't he earned a lot of that money? Not only from the show he was on as a kid, but all the sponsorships, the influencer nonsense. It was all his anyways, all of it. Even the money he hadn't earned would one day be his. Nayrod pulled up a chair next to the painting and frantically tapped through his phone, transferring funds to accounts no one else could access. He built walls that none of his father's ancient accountants could crack and imagined the look on his grandfather's face when he discovered that Nayrod had left them behind. He stayed on his phone for hours, charting his escape. It was just before sunrise when Nayrod noticed it, his portrait's right hand. Nayrod hadn't been imagining anything when Henry dragged him away. The small smatter of red dripping from his right hand was there, still, in his portrait. But there was something else now. 
the knuckles of his left hand in the painting had a deep red gash across them. Was it some sort of joke by the painter that he spilled his paint by accident? Nayrod rubbed his knuckles as he peered at the painting and realized that the sharp, sweet paint that had been there just hours ago was now gone. Nayrod looked down at his hands and found them clean, clear, and spotless. No sign of where Henry had slashed him. Not even a sign of where Nayrod had dug his nails into his own flesh. Not even a scar. It was like neither of the wounds had ever happened to him. His heart quickened as he stared at the impossibly healed wounds. Then he looked at the evidence of them on the paint. Nayrod felt almost insane at the moment, as if he was trapped in a dream or a nightmare. Could it be he wasn't sure what was going on? But then he realized if what he thought was happening was actually happening, this was an easy theory to test. He reached into his pockets for the knife that Henry had given him. The click of the knife echoed faintly in the parlor, and before he could change his mind, he pulled the blade hard across the top of his left forearm. He did it a second time, a deeper, longer cut. There it was, that sore of adrenaline. He felt it all, the sting of sliced flesh, the warm blood, the rush in his veins. And then Nayrod looked up, afraid at what he would see on the canvas. But there it was. Red seeping through the left sleeve of the crisp white shirt that he wore in the painting. Seconds later, a second line appeared, and within minutes, both bloody spots on his portrait grew brighter and more distinct. He looked down at his arm and stared in shock as the skin slowly knit itself back together right in front of his eyes. His mind raced, and suddenly he remembered his fervent whisper, the prayer that had sprung up from his soul. Anything, he had thought, he would do anything, sell his soul even, to never change. The bargain had been made then, with God or with Satan, he didn't know and he didn't care. He understood instinctually that this was a deal sealed in blood, and it was a deal that he accepted. Silently, Nayrod thanked whatever God had granted him the gift and stared up into the eyes of his beautiful portrait, again sinking the knife into his own flawless skin. By the time Nayrod left his home early in the morning, the beautiful rugs in the parlor were stained with his own blood, and yet he appeared as healthy and rested as if he had just spent a week at the spa. Indeed, he had never felt better. Henry was waiting for Nayrod at the small airport. His private jet was on the tarmac, and as Nayrod boarded, he was only mildly surprised to see his friend looking a little strung out. As he slouched in a small seat near the cockpit, Henry looked like he might have been sleeping. But the moment Nayrod took a seat, Henry spoke up suddenly, gesturing to a pair of smartphones on a little table. Replacements. Nayrod took one, logged into his bank accounts, smiled at the numbers on the screen, and removed the battery from his old phone. No one would be able to follow them now. Nayrod wondered how his father and grandfather would make sense of his absence and especially how they would understand the mess that he left on the parlor. Would he be declared dead? Missing? He had left an impossible amount of blood on the floor, in front of a portrait of himself suddenly covered in scars across its arms, legs, and even once handsome face. But of course, they would eventually figure out that he was alive and well, and he had just left. Nayrod wanted to run away, but the plan was not to disappear from the world itself. Over the following months, stories about Nayrod and Henry spread online and in tabloids. 
they traveled to Madrid and spent a few wild weeks in Eastern Europe. With each stop, they sought company that would understand and indulge in bloodletting with them. As expected, most of the people they met in clubs and bars and swanky hotels were horrified at the practice of slicing their own skin to enjoy the taboo rush, but every now and then they'd meet someone who would welcome the new game. And once their reputation in a given city grew sour, they were gone, on to the next beautiful city with beautiful broken people. As weeks went by, Henry's condition reflected their hobby, but Nayrod stayed unblemished. Even though he lost blood every night, his health remained intact, his skin unscarred from knives of all sorts. Nayrod kept his secret to himself, making sure his friend never realized that the scars on Nayrod's body magically disappeared. He never cut himself in a place that he couldn't cover up. But then one night in Russia changed everything. Henry and Nayrod had rented a beautiful apartment for several nights, with a view looking up at the spires of the Red Square that dominated the skyline. As always, they would wake up whenever their bodies told them to get up, find some food, and then wait for the sun to set before setting out in search of someone to have fun with. And late in the night, Nayrod and Henry would make their way to whatever clubs were in the area, of course with Nayrod front and center. His perfect face was their ticket into any room, and his ability to exude confidence and wealth just grew. Henry was a footnote, sneaking in on Nayrod's coattails. That night inside the club, music reverberated against the high ceilings, and neon lights bathed the horde of dancing socialites in blues and pinks. As they pushed their way through the crowds, Henry played one of his little games. He flipped open his switchblade knife and let the blade slide across the arms and legs of anyone unfortunate enough to press against him as he followed behind Nayrod. Once they found a place to perch together, he examined the knife in the flashing club lights and trailed his finger along the commingled blood of whoever happened to catch the blade just right. He held the knife out to Nayrod, who lightly touched a tip of his finger to it and then raised the stained finger to his mouth. They grinned at each other and waited. It never took long. Eventually, someone always summoned the courage to approach Nayrod. Tonight, it was a couple. Nayrod didn't care what their names were. In fact, the first thing he asked was simply if they had a place nearby. Indeed, they did. Nayrod and Henry followed the couple to a small rented flat. Inside, the place was designed to scream fun. Colorful paint on the walls, posters from local bands, and bright, vibrant furniture. The woman dumped something out of a small baggie and spread it on the plastic coffee table, and then bent over it as she waved the others to join her. Henry was happy to oblige. But Nayrod was beyond such things. He had been for years. He only watched and made sure the door was locked. Tonight, he was going to break some of Henry's rules the one about inflicting nothing more than a scratch, and the one about only cutting yourself. As Nayrod watched the three others take turns snorting the white powder, he jabbed the tip of a blade into his thumb and let the warmth bloom. Within moments, it was healed. His blood was replenished, and he could start over again. He was eyeing the woman's long, narrow neck as Henry began his usual spiel to the couple about expanding their minds and trying something new. Nayrod was still lost in his thoughts when he realized something had gone wrong. Henry had taken his knife out and put it on the table, but the couple had not taken kindly to the sight of it. They were now screaming at Henry and Nayrod to leave. 
as Henry gestured innocently and tried to explain, the angry, frightened man jumped up and grabbed the collar of his jacket. From behind the two men, Nayrod held out his hand, brandishing his own knife. The woman screamed as Nayrod rushed the tussling men, and as her partner turned to look at the attacker, the shock in the man's face brought a feeling that Nayrod couldn't immediately identify. And then he realized what it was. Joy. What he felt at the man's terror was utter joy. What Nayrod hadn't expected was that his intended victim was already armed too, with Henry's knife, and he slashed it across Nayrod's beautiful face before plunging it deep into his side. Nayrod's body rippled with pain as he enjoyed his most intense bloodletting yet, his own knife dropping from his hand. But Henry and the woman stood frozen to the spot as the man realized what he had done. Nayrod stared daggers at the man, ignoring the blood pouring down his own face. For a moment, everything was still. All four of them were frozen, a painting of misfortune. And then Nayrod, with a groan and a squelch, yanked the knife from his side and went to work. A man had made Nayrod's decision for him. Now it was Nayrod's turn. In the morning, Henry sat in the corner with his knees to his chest, barely blinking, mind simultaneously blank and somehow racing. Nayrod slept peacefully in a pool of red. When he woke, it was as if he had been resting for days. When he saw Henry staring at him with abject terror, Nayrod realized his friend was finally witnessing the miraculous recovery of his wounds. Mere hours earlier, Nayrod's good looks had been slashed in half. The left corner of his mouth had been torn. Henry himself had witnessed it with agonizing clarity, and the sight had turned his stomach. But now Henry watched as Nayrod rose, stretched, and pulled his arm across his face to wipe the blood of the man and the woman lying at his feet. And like magic, as Nayrod dragged his sleeve across, his flawless good looks were unveiled. He didn't even look like he'd accidentally nicked himself shaving. That was the moment Nayrod told his friend everything, about the painting, about the possibility that Nayrod would never suffer the indignity of aging, let alone the inconvenience of injury. Nayrod told Henry about the night before leaving home, about watching the painted man on the canvas suffer the cuts, stabs, and gouges that Nayrod had subjected himself to. If he had to guess, that painting was now looking even worse for the wear— Henry listened quietly, still in shock, at the brutal murders Nayrod had committed right before his eyes. But Nayrod himself was revitalized. All he wanted now was to do it again and again. The question he had now, as he looked at Henry's shocked face, was whether or not his friend would be a problem. Henry, his childhood friend, who now wouldn't even meet Nayrod's gaze. Unacceptable. Tearing his eyes away from the cowering Henry, Nayrod surveyed the scene. He had truly unleashed his frustration on this unfortunate couple. Nayrod picked up the couple's phones, took a few photos to remember them by, being careful to remove the SIM cards from them before pocketing the phones. If he made sure no one could track these phones, they could serve as reminders for all time. Hard drives of their lives, loaded undoubtedly with photos of better days and ending with the last night of their lives. A token, a gift for himself. From behind him, the sound of Henry slowly rising creaked in the flat. This would be interesting. Henry's body was shaking 
and he was moving his head back and forth. He pulled out his cell phone with trembling hands. What are you doing? Nayron asked quietly. Henry looked at him with bloodshot eyes. We have to... We have to call someone. Nayron reached for his knife again and savored the delicious fear that he saw in his old friend's eyes. That evening, Nayron left Henry and Russia for good. On his own now, traveling from place to place undetected was easier without Henry. At scene after scene, in towns and cities across multiple nations, detectives would walk into a chaos of blood and flesh. They decided they were looking for a madman, a raving lunatic. So many victims had fought back, police assumed quite rationally, that the culprit himself must be bruised and battered from battles with every victim. And yet, Nayrod would leave every crime scene looking as if nothing had happened at all. The victims and the killer both left copious amounts of blood at every crime scene, and yet no hospitals or doctors anywhere had treated the attacker. It was a riddle without an answer, a puzzle with no solution. They could do all the DNA testing they wanted, connect the murders, but he had a clean record, and there wasn't a single police agency in the world that had his DNA on file to match to. Nayrod Yurg imagined himself a modern Jack the Ripper, the ultimate evolution in murder. His endless wealth made it easy to hop across the continent, and his never-changing looks provided an alibi that any criminal would be jealous of. He would tally up his victims and marvel at how often he nearly lost count. At first, it was a rush unlike anything else. But then, like anything in life, he began to get bored. He left the knife behind and began tearing his victims apart with his bare hands. But the rush was diminishing, like a light bulb gradually losing its electricity. He had strangled, maimed, gutted, bludgeoned. For a time, it had been thrilling. He was unstoppable and anonymous. But being unstoppable, the rush was gone. Being anonymous, there was no thrill. And then one evening, he knew it was over. He looked down at his latest victim and took no joy in what he had just done. The routine had grown stale. The police would come, they would puzzle, they would come up with a profile, and they would all look right through the handsome, poised Nayrod Yurg, even if he stared them right in the face. There was no questioning, no cat and mouse game like in the movies. There was just Nayrod all by himself, addicted to the blood and violence, and no one to stop him. Finishing his ritual, Nayrod photographed what used to be a living human being on what used to be her phone, and then slipped it into his pocket. That night, he hopped onto a train and knew exactly what he needed to do next. Pushing open the large and heavy front door, the Yurg estate welcomed the hollow Nayrod home after years, with a long echo reverberating through its enormous empty rooms. It was all waiting for him, all this time. But who would he find haunting the halls? Nayrod marched slowly past room after room, finally spotting a shriveled old man who loosely resembled his father. It was him, all right. Walter Yurg had lost weight and his skin had grown withered and wrinkled, but otherwise he was as Yurg remembered him. In reaction to the approaching footsteps, Walter looked up, perhaps expecting some servant to bring him something to eat. Instead, his eyes landed on Nayrod looking no older than the day he'd left, and he lifted a finger to point at him, opened his mouth as if to scream, but nothing emerged from the old man. 
Nayrod learned that not only was his father still limping along, but his grandfather was somehow still clinging to life. He had been spending his days confined to the parlor upstairs in recent years, at first refusing to leave and eventually unable to leave even if he wanted to. Nayrod climbed the stairs behind his father until they reached the top floor. With a creak, the door to the parlor opened, and there was the family elder, Grandfather Basil. An oxygen machine puffed air for him, and a tray of untouched food sat forgotten beside his wheelchair. Grandfather Basil himself was dressed in an old robe, stained and worn. In the corner behind him was his portrait. Presumably, he spent his days staring at the man he used to be, or the man he thought he used to be, but the contrast had never been worse. In paint, Basil wore his pride on his sleeve. He carried an air of accomplishment. The real man, however, the skin and bone figure in the chair, he looked almost dead. He had lost muscle, he was missing teeth, his hair was so sparse and jagged, it made Nayrod think about how corpses still grow hair and fingernails as they rot. The ancient man looked in Nayrod's direction, feebly asking, Is it you, Nayrod? Coughs and spasms rippled through the man's body, and Nayrod noticed the old man spit out something red. Nayrod's father hobbled across the parlor floor to somehow help, his bones cracking in time with the rotting floorboards. There in the parlor, the scene was somehow worse than what Nayrod had anticipated. His father's painting stood near his grandfather's, another lie. And next to the two was a third frame, covered with a clean white sheet. That must be his own portrait. Had they covered it so they didn't have to look at the son who had run away? Or no, had they covered it because they had seen what was happening to it? They knew what was under the sheet. Absent-mindedly, Nayrod rubbed at his jaw where, a long time ago, a blade once carved his flesh apart, and he felt something familiar flood up his spine as he eyed the two old men. They deserved every indignity that God could muster for having the audacity to live past their prime. But Nayrod had beaten the game. He could eat, drink, and leave behind a good-looking corpse if that day ever came. The old men turned as Nayrod stepped towards them and muttered with a broad gesture towards the portraits. This is never who you were, and look at you now. Nayrod strode towards the covered painting and reached for the white sheet, only to feel a hand on his shoulder. Nayrod's father, a pleading look of horror on his ragged face, uttered a single word. Don't. Nayrod felt rage surge through him. No one could tell him what to do, especially not the two men who had commandeered most of his life. He turned and wrapped his hands around his father's throat, and together they fell to the ground. Nayrod heard something snap in his father's body, but all he could think about was how this felt better than anything had ever felt before. With the last of his father's breath squeezed out of his body, Nayrod heard a squeak of metal behind him. It was Grandfather Basil, pathetically slowly rolling toward the covered portrait and reaching with a limp hand toward the white sheet. Nayrod stood up and swept his perfect hair back into place. He dusted off his impeccable clothes and walked over to the old man who had finally managed to grip the cover in his ghastly hand. He watched as the old man began to tug at the sheet, but before he could unveil it, Nayrod pulled the fabric out of his grandfather's hand, stuck the blade of his knife into the old man's neck, and pulled it across fast and tight. 
The old man slumped sideways, his eyes still open and trained on Nayrod as the blood and life drained out of him. Nayrod wiped the blade of his knife across his grandfather's shirt and pushed his wheelchair aside, standing back to stare at the covered portrait. He was suspended between fear and fascination, but he finally reached out and pulled off the white sheet. Before him stood the truth of what he was. The man looking back at him wasn't just aged. He looked unequivocally evil. The darkness of Nayrod's deeds reflected through the sallow eyes of the portrait, in the sunken gray skin, in the blood-encrusted nails, in the yellow teeth and rotten clothing. This, realized Nayrod, was what he would look like today if he hadn't said that prayer and struck that bargain with whatever force in the universe had answered it. And then from behind him came a voice. I knew one day you'd be back. Nayrod spun around to find his old friend Henry stepping out from a shadow in the far corner of the room. Henry responded to the confusion on Nayrod's face. You thought you killed me, but I survived. And I got out of there before anyone else showed up to discover what you had done. I knew it would get pinned on me, and I've been here for a long time now, waiting for you, for this moment. That was when Nayrod saw the dagger in Henry's hand. He laughed, unable to stop himself. You absolute idiot. Don't you know by now that you can't hurt me? I'm immortal. Henry lunged forward, dagger raised, and Nayrod stepped to the side involuntarily. His old friend flew past him and brought down the dagger across the portrait that captured Nayrod's true nature. He slashed the painting in half and then turned to look at Nayrod, whose face was frozen in shock. Shock, because before his eyes, the two halves of the painting began morphing, transforming back into the portrait of the young man he was when he had first posed for it. Pain surged through his body suddenly, and as he looked down at his hands, the skin grew mottled with blue veins, red scars bloomed across his forearms, and his nails toughened and curled. He felt the anguish of every cut he had ever made to his own body, and the wounds that he had given to others. Nayrod fell to his knees as his eyes dimmed, his body overcome with years and years of aging within seconds. The last thing he saw before everything grew dark was his perfectly sculpted face, burgeoning with youth, staring back at him from a tattered canvas. This week's story was a modern interpretation of The Picture of Dorian Gray, a novel written in 1890 by Oscar Wilde. The name of our protagonist, in case you missed it, was an immordnilap of the name Dorian Gray. What you may ask in the world is an immordnilap. Well, it both refers to a word spelled backwards, and it happens to be the word palindrome spelled backwards. And that's how we get Nayrod Yerg. It's Dorian Gray spelled backwards. Anyhow, moving along, the picture of Dorian Gray became an immediate and enduring classic, thanks to its central theme, one we can all relate to, the desire to stay young forever and beautiful and to live as hedonistically as we'd like without ever looking like it. What you might not know is that the book, which is Oscar Wilde's only novel, while iconic and influential, was immediately embroiled in controversy upon release. And not for the reasons you'd expect. 
That's because in the original novel, the portrait artist, a man named Basil Hallward, expresses his love and seeming attraction to Dorian. The references to homosexual love were swiftly met with criticism, and a year later, Wilde had to release a new version of the story downplaying this attraction and replaced Basil's attraction to Dorian with his devotion to the painting itself. However, in 1895, Oscar Wilde was put on trial himself after being accused of being a homosexual. While Wilde was married with children, he had gotten involved in an affair with a young man who was 16 years younger than him, named Lord Alfred Douglas. Douglas's father found out about the affair, was furious at Wilde, and called him a sodomite in a calling card that he left for Wilde at a hotel. Oscar Wilde, not one to back down, decided to sue his lover's father for defamation. It was an unwise move on the part of Wilde because essentially there was no defamation given that the allegation that he was a homosexual was in fact true. After three days, Wilde withdrew his lawsuit and then an arrest warrant for 25 counts of gross indecency was issued against him. His friends throughout all of this urged Wilde to flee the country, but he refused. He wanted to fight the charges, but like his defamation suit, it didn't go as he hoped. Oscar Wilde stood trial twice, the first time resulting in a hung jury, but the second time he was convicted and sentenced to two years of hard labor. And as part of the evidence against him, passages from the picture of Dorian Gray were read in open court. Those years in prison were hard for Wilde, and he died a mere three years after his release while in exile in Paris at the young age of 46. Today, the picture of Dorian Gray is remembered as a classic piece of horror history and an inventive story of pride, narcissism, and the exploration of societal taboos. But as much as these themes continue to resonate today, the backstory also serves as an ironic reminder that artists often pay a heavy price for the art that makes them immortal. Tonight's tale was written by Will Rogers. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. <laughs>